Well, if you're just joining us this morning, um, we're nearing the end of our sermon series. It's a topical series that we've been looking at using this book by Kelly Capick, a professor at Covenant College, titled You're Only Human and Why That's a Good Thing. And we've been working, using that as kind of a loose reference week to week to think about the gift of being human, to fight against um, the never-ending demands of our culture, to try to be superhuman. And so some weeks I've said, hey, if you're reading along with the book, you're going to think this sermon has nothing to do with the chapter. (laughs) Because some of the chapters felt more like they were set up for an academic lecture. But this week in this chapter has been my favorite so far of the entire book. And I joke with the first service, it's the last, first time I can ever remember preaching a sermon without a single Paul Tripp or Tim Keller quote in it. Because there's so much just in this chapter that I love. And, and the question and kind of the focus that Capic poses this week is why doesn't God just instantly change me? And he's getting at the frustration that often happens in the Christian life um, with that notion of why, if I am in Christ, does God not deliver me and change me more quickly or immediately from areas where I struggle? Now, if you're new to church or Christianity, let me give you a quick framework for what we're talking about. God's word makes it clear that every single human being is created in the image of God, fearfully and wonderfully made, worth with dignity and value. We are of inestimable value, but even though that dignity is so great, our first parents, Adam and Eve, when they chose to rebel against God, they brought a curse upon creation and their own hearts. And so as a result of that, every human being created fearfully and wonderfully made in God's image is born, the Bible says, spiritually dead. And we are, we are born sinful in our parents' womb. And so David articulates it this way in Psalm 51.5, Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Um, this only makes sense when you understand that our original design was to live in, in the flourishing shalom of loving God and loving our neighbor. And the curse of sin is that we are more than anything else fully committed to loving ourselves, regardless of if that glorifies God or serves the good of our neighbor. And what this means is that each and every human being is born, spiritually speaking, dead. And so Paul says in Ephesians 2, you were all dead in your trespasses and sins like the rest of mankind. So this isn't him saying you were especially bad, so you were dead, but other people were further along. Everyone is spiritually dead. That is the natural human condition of every heart. And that's why Jesus himself in his ministry said to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, which of course led to Nicodemus, a a Jewish theologian saying, "Well, well, how can that happen? How can someone be born again when they're old? And Jesus shared with him what has become arguably the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. In other words, when someone exercises saving faith, when they trust that Jesus is the one true living God, they move from death to life. That that, that act regenerates us and removes our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. And the moment that happens, the moment someone exercises by God's grace alone, saving faith, you automatically are justified in God's sight, which means you are legally declared righteous because of Jesus' perfect worth, death, and resurrection on your behalf, and you can never lose it. 
I love that Charlie shared that story about this girl wrestling with, I'm, I'm afraid that my sin is going to be greater at some point than God's grace. It reminded me of the beginning of the movie, The Patriot, where Benjamin Martin says, as the movie's just beginning, I have long since feared that the sins of my youth would come back to catch up to me, and the cost is more than I can bear. The bad news is that the cost of all of our sins is more than we can bear, but the good news is that Jesus bore it on the cross for us, and nothing can change that. And so the moment you trust in Christ, you are born again, and you become an adopted child of God. And the New Testament term for this is you actually become a saint. Now, we would feel pompous and arrogant to say, hey, I'm a saint. But biblically speaking, no matter what struggles you brought in here today, if you are trusting in Christ as your Savior, you are a saint. And nothing, nothing, nothing can ever change that. A part of why it's hard to believe is because we know the moment we convert and receive that good news we continue to struggle in many areas of our life. And that is the process that we call sanctification. The lifelong, gradual, sometimes maddening and slow, frustrating process of being made more and more holy like Jesus. Being set free from all the sins that entangle us. And so I included this brief little definition in your bulletin that I hope is helpful. From the New City Catechism, question 32 Justification means our declared righteousness before God. Think of like a legal declaration in a court of law made possible by Christ's death and resurrection for us. This is why the thief on the cross who simply asked Jesus, will you remember me when you enter your kingdom? And he said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. The thief on the cross didn't have time, quote unquote, to clean up his life and morally reform himself. And Jesus didn't say you gotta spend 37 to 57 years in purgatory trying to make up for all the mistakes in your past, but today by faith alone, you will be with me in paradise. But when we are here on earth in our actual lives, once we are justified, the next thing happens, sanctification begins. The gradual growing process where we are growing in righteousness made possible by the Spirit's work in our lives. And that's the framework for the focus this week of sanctification. And the reason we need to hear and be reminded of this topic specifically is because whether you're aware of it or not, we are being discipled thousands of ways every day by our culture that says you need to be more efficient and more productive and you need to do everything now. The last thing you should do is commit to a patient, slow journey in any area of your life. If our Amazon Prime package doesn't arrive in two days, we're furious. If our internet download speed doesn't happen quickly enough, then we're frustrated. Every area of our life, we are being trained and discipled that faster, more productive, more effective is the way to experience fullness of life. And I'm not even going to jump into the overwhelming data that shows that there's a way that seems right to man that only ultimately leads to death, but rather we need to remember that, one, God doesn't operate in that same framework. Because he is God and because he is wise and good and loving and his values and his goals for his people and his kingdom are different, he's not going to operate in a way that quote-unquote makes sense to us from a worldly manner. And so Capic says it this way, love, community, and growth of character are often, though not always, at odds with efficiency. This is something God has always known and been comfortable with one of the most inefficient things you can ever do is love another person or even a puppy. Loving another creature requires engagement, response, and patience 
loads of patience. Similarly, the artist or author knows all too well that efficiency is often the enemy rather than the friend of creativity and progress. The almighty creator, however, has always been comfortable prioritizing love and growth over efficiency and check marks. And then Capic adds his own, his own personal statement, I want to be more like that. And I love that he didn't go back and edit that out of the manuscript because I want to be more like that. This, without a doubt, this area of keeping in step with the Spirit, being a slow, unforced rhythm of grace, and my never-ending love for efficiency and productivity and go fast and get everything done yesterday make me question and struggle, God, am I actually the person that should be shepherding and pastoring this church? You don't need me to be Captain Obvious to tell you this, that in South Charlotte, we are way, way, way too busy. I've been here 16 years, and if I tell you, without a doubt, the number one most common thing that people say to me in random conversations, someone said it to me in between the services, and they said, oh, sorry, I shouldn't have said that. I say, what's up? How are you doing? Good. How are things going? They are busy. And so what I'll do sometimes to try to not be so convinced, i say, things are just full. (laughs) Same thing. (laughs) But we are so busy. And so I do genuinely get afraid and wonder, Lord, why don't you send someone else to pastor and shepherd your church that that, that just operates in a healthier rhythm than I do? And at least as of today, a part of what the Lord keeps saying is, no, I I want you here so you can repent and, and try to learn differently and follow me in a different manner. Everything that our culture is trying to sell us, no matter how wise it may seem on the surface, no matter how much it may lead to you getting a bigger bonus from your employer, is not the way to life. It's not the way to shalom, to flourishing. Steve Smith in his book, Soul Custody, says this, the Chinese have two characters for the English word busyness, which they define as heart annihilation. We're killing ourselves with all of our busy, busy, busy. One of the reasons for the overwhelming amount of annihilation around us and in us is that the sin of busyness is very subtle. It's a subtle sin because busyness is validated, applauded, and affirmed everywhere, and sometimes, especially among Christians. Oh, we need to hear this. Gosh, you know, Jesus said, woe to you when, when all men speak well of you, so they did the false prophets. Like, like, it's so hard for me when people in the church are upset with me, and I think they're upset because I wasn't efficient enough in responding to them. Because God is a God of love more than anything else, he's patient. He plays the long game. He is much more committed to growing us in love and character than he is in efficient, productive numbers. We know this very clearly because in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, first and foremost, love is patient. He goes on to say so much about love, and you may have had that read at your wedding, and it's an amazing definition of love, especially for us in a society that says we love everything and we water it down. But he says more than anything else, love has a time, and that time component of love is very slow and patient and gradual. Things like community and growth of character, they are, as he says, at odds with efficiency. That cannot happen in a microwave approach. It takes time. And God is committed to that time, even if it frustrates us. 
Now, just so we are clear, and I want you to hear me, God is the sovereign creator and ruler of all things. He spoke creation into being. He can heal any one of us and free us from any sin that entangles instantaneously if he so chooses. And he does do that. We should pray and ask for those things in our lives. And we know from Scripture and the stories given to us and our own lives that more often than not, he takes a gradual, long-term approach to changing us. You know, you know, biblically speaking, it says, Jesus says, listen, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you've got to become like little children. And so you have this framework for if you don't humble yourself and become a little child, you can't enter the kingdom. And then Paul, the apostle, builds on this, and the most common phrase he uses for the Christian life is never getting things done, but it's walking with God, keeping in step with the Spirit. Anyone who's a parent who has served in our nursery recently knows a child learning to walk is a gradual process. And Capic picks up on that. He says, anytime we see our kids learning how to walk and they stand up for the first time and they take one or two steps and then they fall down, what do we do? Even if you're a terrible parent, you usually pick them up and say, good job, and you encourage them, which gives them courage to keep trying to walk. And he says, we don't want to admit it, but we often think of God in such a harsh, tyrannical way who knows clearly more than we do how hard it's going to be for us to learn to walk and keep in step with him, to live a life of love instead of selfishness and anger and envy. But then as soon as we fail and struggle, we can often assume that he is just this angry, mean, frustrated parent who's yelling and screaming, what's wrong with you, kid? Just put one foot in front of the other. Get your hips moving. Like, like, like reading that this week, I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's true of me. Like, in all the ways I want him to change me as a father, when any of my girls were learning to walk, I was so excited and encouraging them. And so that, that picture for me was super helpful to think about God's heart of delight and desire and patience and compassion. He's not surprised by our struggles. He's not surprised by the ways that, that, that you struggle to live according to the fruit of the Spirit. He's committed to the long-term process of growing us. And so Capic says, time and process are aspects of the creation that God made and called very good. When we are frustrated by the nature of that process we call growth, we can learn about our relationship with God by examining the frustration and the nature of the process is good. And the only goal towards which we're working, namely deeper communion with God. I wanted to pick kind of as a passage to reflect on for a brief moment, Philippians 1, 6 and 7, and this is in your bulletin. And if you're not familiar, this is the Apostle Paul planted the church in Philippi and ministered to them, and then he would travel to plant other churches, but he kept a close relationship with churches and, you know, was a spiritual mentor and father. And when he's imprisoned in Rome, the church in Philippi is worried, understandably, oh my gosh, if you get killed, what's going to happen to us? We need your help. We need you to help mold us and disciple us. And Paul, in prison, writes them this. He says, I am sure of this, that he, referring to God, who began the good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me. Of grace. See, Paul wasn't minimizing. He doesn't say, hey, listen, pastors don't matter. Um, shepherds and those that disciple and lead you, they don't really matter at all. He says, no, God uses them, 
But the one who's ultimately doing the work in your life and who's more committed to that process of your growth and your good than you could ever be, he's going to see that through to completion. And so I want you to trust the process by trusting the heart of your father, who is a creator, who is an artist, the same spirit that created the heavens and the earth with intricate detail, who created all the animals and all the trees, is the same spirit that saves and sanctifies. Now, we were in our discussion meeting, our sermon discussion meeting on Tuesday, and another pastor, not me, another pastor said, isn't it funny how often football coaches used to use the phrase, trust the process? And I say it's funny because I think sometimes people think I only look to football references, but that's not true. But if you know anything about college football, you know trust the process is kind of synonymous with Alabama football and Nick Saban, who without a doubt, there's no debate here, greatest college football coach in history. And what they've done the past 16 years is unparalleled in terms of their dominance. And forever, Saban will say, trust the process, trust the process. So he would bring in amazing five-star recruits who would be frustrated, sit on the bench, knowing they could start and be a star somewhere else. But then the NFL player in front of them would move on, and then they would take their place, and Saban would preach, trust the process, trust the process, right? But what's happening now? They're not in the playoff because we don't want to trust the process. We're like, if this person isn't delivering immediately, then we want you to raise money, hit the transfer portal, and go find someone else and bring them in. And so TCU's playing in the championship. They were terrible last year, but they hit the portal. They brought a bunch of players in. Georgia, who's dominated recruiting for 10 straight years, still uses the portal. And again, so as a society, we're like, we don't want to trust the process anywhere. And for those of you that know me, you know that I'm a lifelong diehard Clemson fan. And so besides Alabama, the most dominant team the past decade is Clemson with two national championships and six college football playoff appearances. But their coach, Dabo Sweeney, is like, no, I'm more committed to the character and development of the kids in my locker room, so I'm not going to use the portal. Only coach in the country who didn't use the portal. And so here's me as a fan. If I had a son, I would love for him to play for Dabo over Saban any day of the week. I'd love for him to be mentored and cared for and molded by Dabo Sweeney. Here's me watching them get crushed by Tennessee. I'm sick and tired of this. If he doesn't use the portal, I'm done. <laughs> I don't even want to watch any more games. What is his problem? Like, like, like that's a part of the tension, again, we even feel in our society. But in our Christian life, a part of what happens as the spirit continues to shape and mold us is two things will happen. One is you'll grow in your ability to delight and appreciate the gift you've been given in lots of areas of life while also being frustrated that things aren't different in other areas. And so Alan Jackson even articulates it this way in the song, The Older I Get. And Alan Jackson is a believer. He says, the older I get, the longer I pray. I don't know why, I guess that I've got more to say. And the older I get, the more thankful I feel for the life I've had and the life I'm living still. Now, that hit me this weekend, and the fact that Capic doesn't just say God is committed to love and growing our character and growing us in humility and service and generosity, the fact that he throws in there that God is committed to growing a community, which we actually get, and on the one hand, it shouldn't surprise me. We actually emphasize that a lot here, but it hit me this weekend because I referenced I was in such a bad place last year and, and absolutely 100% believed at this time last year I would not be here this year living here or working here or both. But reading that this week and reflecting on it, I took Mary Rachel to Harris Teeter on Friday night at like 5.30 to grab a couple things 
And then we go to Brooklyn Pizza because we do a family pizza night most Fridays and watch a movie. And I came, well, as soon as I walk in Brooklyn Pizza, just to be honest, there's a line of like 20 people. And I take a picture and I send it to Stephanie. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Look how inefficient this is. <laughs> She's like, oh, I'm sorry. Thanks for going to get it. But as I'm there and holding Rachel's hand, and she doesn't care that it's inefficient. She's just happy. And she's seeing people. The Lord just starts bringing all these people from our community that don't go to church here. Hey, ma'am, what's up? And, of course, Mary Rachel knows them and knows their dog. So when I get home, <laughs> Stephanie rightfully, sadly, is expecting me to be angry and frustrated. And I'm like, hey, like the Lord showed me, like, he's really helping us connect with our community. I saw these different people at Harris Teeter. I, I knew the person checking us out. I saw all these people at Brooklyn Pizza that I bump into regularly. Like some person was, one guy was like, hey, man, I saw you at Carmel Middle the other day. Like you have a kid. Like, it, it was, just, it was just, just great. Like I'm like, man, I'm so unbelievably thankful. It's taken 16 years, but he's been doing work and putting down roots. So then I wake up Saturday morning and go to the Y. And just because I'm committed to growing in patience, I'm coaching my 8-year-old daughter's basketball team. <laughs> but I'm, I get up in the morning. I'm like, Lord, first game, my only prayer is to love and care for these girls and um, help me not get too caught up and triggered and whatever and walking into the Y and we see some people we know and, and my heart's feeling grateful and I'm coaching with a friend of mine who I've got a good relationship with so we start playing the game and it's the first game of the season the refs tell us right before the game they're allowed to steal when they're dribbling that's a new rule they used to not be able to steal and I'm like half of our girls 80% of our girls can't even dribble <laughs> so I'm like the whole goal is if we can remember to run to this end for offense and that end for defense so we get started, and I tell my buddy, I say, hey, man, what if I stand here and kind of coach them, and, hey, Emma, pass to so-and-so, and you work the rotation. Just get, you know, tell them who they're going to replace. And he's like, great, got it. So we start out the game, and within five minutes, we're up 10 to 2. And I'm like, wow, this is going pretty well. And so then my buddy starts subbing people in. And I told him, I said, hey, just make sure we have one person that can dribble the ball because we need somebody to dribble it up the court. <laughs> he's like, got it, I'm good. Well, we go from being up 10 to 2 to 10 to 4 to 10 to 6 to 10 to 8, and now I'm furious. And so I turn, I'm like, what are you doing? And I grab two. I'm like, y'all got to go back in the game. <laughs> Just so there's not unnecessary suspense, we did win the game. <laughs> For the glory of God. <laughs> but when we were driving home and Stephanie was asking Kate, how was it? Um, the Lord really convicted me. Like, why, why did you act that way? Why did you yell at your buddy who was trying to help just rotate eight-year-old girls into the game to play? <laughs> That's not a joke. I'm serious. And I, I, I sent him a message and was like, will you please forgive me? And he was gracious and kind. Paul says that this happens in our lives. The same one who wrote to the Philippians, you don't need to be worried. Later in that letter, he says, you can cast all your anxieties upon the Lord. He cares for you, and his peace, which passes understanding, can guard your hearts and your minds. And he says, I'm actually praying, like, God, I don't know if I want you to set me free to go visit this church or let them kill me because I'll be with Jesus, which is better by far. Like, Christians throughout history have said, Lord, give me that level of contentment, like this relaxed, restful heart. But Paul also wrote this, and so the spirit stirs up deep gratitude and thankfulness and also a frustration that things aren't different. So Paul says in Romans 7, I don't understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind 
in making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, don't laugh. I told the story about basketball, and, and we laughed. Great, whatever. But I wasn't laughing yesterday when I got home. I felt the weight of that wretched man that I am. Like, am I ever going to change? Am I just cursing my daughter and, and the other girls on these teams because I care too much about winning and yelling at them? Like, Lord, what's wrong with me? And I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to be someone you're using to try to help lead people in, into an awareness of your grace. And a part of what we need to see is that God uses this frustration in Paul's heart and in our own lives that is a regular occurrence in the Christian life to make us more aware of our need for him and to drive us to deeper communion with him. And so again, no coincidence, the next two verses Paul follows with this is not, I'm not going to be an apostle anymore. Don't write me any more letters. Sorry for all the mistakes I've made. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Even if one of the moms on that basketball team yesterday would have called me and said, you're no longer being the coach, how can you call yourself a Christian acting the way you act? As hurtful and sad as that would have been, there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And the more that we believe that, the more it will help us to breathe, to slow down, to trust the process because we trust the heart of our King and our Father who is doing immeasurably more than we ask or imagine according to his power which is at work within us. And so let me read that. This is the last quote I'm going to read. Capic says, when we envision God as a temperamental father, the Christian life will seem heavy and burdensome rather than hopeful and promising. It is endured rather than enjoyed. But if we better understood our God who abounds with compassion and grace, we might more freely grow in our Christian lives without being crushed by our weaknesses and limits. But for that to happen, however, we need to move our focus of attention from our struggles to the faithfulness of the creator, redeemer, and sustainer. And that's our main goal each and every week. Side note, okay, spoiler alert of worship is to focus our attention not on ourselves, but on the faithfulness, the grace, the love, and mercy of our Savior. And today, particularly, we have a unique opportunity to do that as we come to his table. As we come and we partake of this bread and this cup, that our Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, having a meal with his disciples, explained to them, this bread represents my body, which is broken for you. I want you to do this in remembrance of me. And in a similar manner, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink from it, all of you. This was right after he told them, you're all going to deny and forsake me. And they're like, no, we're not. You're wrong. We're not going to do that. And he's like, yes, you are. Nourish your souls with this meal. And that's what we're going to do today. If you're here today, very simply hear this. This table and this bread and wine belongs to our Lord Jesus Christ, not Hope Community Church. And if you, to the best of your ability, are saying, I am seeking to trust Christ alone for my salvation, are welcome to come and partake. And if you're not there yet, if that's confusing and doesn't even make sense, hear this. We are so glad you're here. Please keep coming, but don't come and partake today. There's no benefit to coming and faking it and pretending that you believe something that you don't. We've included some different prayers and meditations in your bulletin. And please reach out. We'd love to get to know you and even be a 
able to potentially be a resource to help you as you're processing the truth claims of Christianity. It's our process to come and receive the elements from the elders. I would ask you if you're willing to exit to the right side of your section and come up front. Inside the trays of grape juice and wine, the inner cluster is wine, the outer rings are grape juice, and there's gluten-free prepackaged options. If you'll receive the element, hold them in your seat, then we will partake together. So I'm going to pray to set it apart, and the elders will come, and then you may come as you feel led. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you not only for the life, death, and resurrection of our gentle and lowly Savior, Jesus Christ, but also that you are so patient and kind and loving towards us that you who began a good work in us will see it through to completion. So I pray that as we come and partake today that you will help us to really trust your heart, to believe that real change is possible, and also be kind to ourselves. Set apart these elements we ask, Lord Jesus, from their normal use to their holy use for your glory and for our good. In Christ's name, amen.